0: Hello there, and welcome to the Made for Love podcast, a Catholic podcast from the USCCB asking the important questions about the call to love, such as favorite works of fiction where characters have fallen in love within a week of meeting each other. Go. I'm your host, Andrew Bonapane, and today we are continuing with part two of our interview with Dr. Greg and Lisa Popcheck. If you missed part one, where we covered resentment in dating and breakups, be sure to go back and check out episode 61. Turning to the widest arena of resentment, which we've already touched on, Um, in marriage we've heard a lot about how the honeymoon phase ends and how couples come to resent each other when they live together under the same roof long enough, especially when added financial or medical or work-related stresses enter the picture to say nothing of the massive undertaking of raising kids. Uh, What are some more good habits to get into before those stresses, those pet peeves and foibles start to really add up?
1: So the, the first one is couple prayer, and and by couple prayer, we don't just mean saying words at God, but, but really actually bringing our hearts to God together and asking him to coach us, essentially, or guide us through the various challenges that we face. You know, so for instance, you know, in our book, uh, Praying For and With Your Spouse, um, we talk about how to bring God into arguments, right? How to bring God into big decisions that you have to make, or even, you know, just the day-to-day stuff. And when you have a a healthy couple prayer relationship, you're able to say about almost anything, okay, Lord, you know, I know what I want, and she knows what she wants. Help us to know what you want, and help us to take care of each other while we figure that out, you know. and, And that simple prayer reminds you that your own ideas are good, but there's a bigger picture that God is asking you to try to attend to. And it's also reminding you that you need to find ways to take care of each other while you're discerning it, that your partner isn't the problem, the problem is the problem. Um, and we're not going to battle out whose opinion is going to win, or who's going to stand on top of the pile at the, end of the, at the end of the argument. But rather, we're both coming to God as, as loving people, as broken people, as, as people who need guidance on how to be the couple that he wants us to be. So that's number one.
2: I'd say number two is learning how to negotiate the how and the when, not the what. You know, we go into marriage, both dating and marriage, often coming from our childhood, where we always had to go to our parents for permission to get our needs met or our wants met. And we go into marriage and we often unconsciously put a parental head on our spouse's shoulders and if they aren't into what we are excited about we think it's a denial of permission and often the spouse who's scared uh, and saying you know oh you you want to open your own business you want to you know climb mount everest whatever it is have another, child, can, have another whatever, child whatever <laughs> it is pray together you know shocking things like that we often think that we can either give or deny permission. And in a Christian adult dating or marriage relationship, it's not about giving permission. You are both adults. It's about saying, you're telling me you have a need, you know, a real desire, God, you feel God placed on your heart or a real need. And I've got X, Y, and Z concerns about that. How can we address these concerns in order to meet that need in a way that works for both of us? You can negotiate the how you're going to do it. You can negotiate the time frame. You can negotiate a lot of things, but it's not about saying, no, you can't have that because I'm not comfortable with it. Uh Because God really challenges us to leave our comfort zones and work for the good of the other person and the good of the relationship. And so it challenges us to be grownups.
0: And I could see that being sort of a cyclical problem almost. My hypothetical wife brings up something that she really wants to do. And I am not enthusiastic about it. She interprets it as a denial of permission, which I don't intend. But then I receive that as maybe like her over-eagerness to blame me for something, right? And then, and then I have resentment piggybacking off of that, and I, and I feed that back to her. So yeah, I could see how that would be sort of a protracted issue. So that's, that's a really good point. Going back to couple prayer, for some people out there who maybe aren't too experienced with that practice. Maybe they only ever pray alone or in a liturgy with a congregation. I wonder if they might feel a little hesitant to maybe be in a discussion or like a disagreement with their spouse and then be expected to start talking to God in the second person, like in the middle of that conversation, which may or may not be, you know, what you'd recommend to them in a, in a particular instance. But I'm wondering if there's anything that might um, help them get comfortable with that practice.
1: The first one is um, whether you realize it or not, God is right there in the room with you. Mm-hmm. And, and he knows you best and loves you most. And is just waiting to be included. Jung said, bidden or unbidden, God is there. Uh, and and that, that's, that's actually very, very true. The, the, he, God is there waiting for us to call on him it's it it's a really huge missed opportunity where we don't ask you know the King of the universe to to actually guide us through whether we should get a dog or not. Um, you know, <laughs> I'm being silly, but but sure. you know, that, but he cares about even those things because he wants us to be in a relationship with him and he wants to be at the center of our relationship. The other thing I'll throw out there is um from a purely psychological standpoint, there was a, a study, I believe was it north Northwestern. Uh, Eli Finkel is a psychologist who did it, and um, they they brought two groups of couples. They, had, they said, okay, we're going to have both of you guys have a difficult conversation. Okay, group one, go off and have that difficult conversation. Group two, imagine somebody that you guys both know that loves you both and wants the best for both of you. How would they want you to handle this discussion? Okay, now go have that discussion. What they found was – not only were the people in, in the second group who imag- took a minute to imagine someone who loved them both and wanted the best for both of them and how that person would want them to have a little conversation, not only did those people resolve arguments more efficiently, their marriage over improved overall when they checked back in with them in a year later. The good news is, as Christians, we don't have to imagine somebody. We have somebody who loves us both and wants the best for both of us. We just have to remember to invite him in. Um, and if that feels awkward, that's okay. I'm going to just say get over it, uh, because it's it's an important enough thing to to do. Uh, and I don't see that we can really have a Christian marriage without couple prayer. Uh, you know, it's 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 the single most essential thing uh, that any couple can do, uh, and and it's just just so critical because we can't learn we can't love each other on our own power. We just can't. Um, We need to be able to rely on on God to guide us through all these things. Let's say you are a
0: couple who haven't had the opportunity to develop those habits. And now you're hearing this or now you're interested in improving your relationship. You're already in the thick of it. Um, How can you start to turn it around and maybe undo some of the unintentional practices in your marriage that maybe haven't contributed to a happy, peaceful relationship.
1: Well, we have this amazing series of books. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm kidding, but but at the same time it's yeah. I mean, if, if folks go to catholiccounselors.com and check out the marriage section of our of our bookshop.
2: But if you're hearing this podcast and you're saying, darn, I, I wish I had that kind of relationship, but we've made all of these mistakes the first thing to do is to go to your spouse and say, I heard this podcast today and it really got me thinking. And I think you and I both deserve better than what we've been giving each other. And I'd like to start doing some things together, like praying together, like using these particular techniques, like reading one of these books, because I love you too much to just kind of sit in the mistakes we've been making. We deserve more and open that conversation. And then if your spouse is like praying together, how are we going to do that? You don't, ask permission. You don't, don't, don't hem and haw about it. You just say, oh, it's that easy. Lord, I love my husband or I love my wife. And, and I want to have an even better marriage, involve you more in it. Please be with us. Please help us know how to pray together to you and to give our marriage to you. Amen. Guess what? You've just learned how to pray together. (laughs) It's really not this big boulder that you have to push up a hill that everybody thinks that it is. It's not intimidating. You know, the God who got down and washed the feet of his his apostles are, is the same God who's there and is humbly with you and loves you and wants to help change
0: your marriage for the good. This is sort of a sidetrack, but I'm wondering, is there or was there a moment or a period in your own study of psychology where you saw a sort of natural fit between psychological practices, which might have been secular or had secular sources, and...
1: Spirituality and the theology of prayer. You know, I grew up you know in a in a family that was a very prayerful, charismatic family actually, and uh, you know we both at, at Franciscan University um, that's where we met in college. Uh, you know, had really good formation there, and we I was studying psychology and theology at the same time, with the you know realizing that just seeing this the, the theology of the body, for example, laid out side by side with some of the psychological stuff that I was studying, and seeing how this is really a healthy view of of being a person. You know, I, I think from the very beginning of, of of my career and of our marriage, you know, we 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 just saw that the how they overlapped. And uh, you know, so we we were praying together on our first date.
2: Yeah. You know. Yeah, um, we were very blessed that we both had our own personal relationships with God and a deep faith and a deep prayer life individually. And so from the get-go, that's where we've been. And we've been really blessed to be able to to share that with people and teach them how to do it. It doesn't always make it easy. I'm, I'm going to no. say that there are times and every couple is going to have this where you're in the middle of one of those battles and, and you both kind of hunker down into your own desires and your own, you know, I'm rightness. And it, it takes a little bit of, of grumbling to God interiorly to have him prompt you to do that couple prayer and to not just, you know, hold your resentments in during that battle yourself. But when you're, when you're trying to always kind of check in with God daily, he doesn't let you get away with that for long. He is going to prompt you to, to bring it all to him together. And then, then he shows you how to heal it.
1: But, but the whole focus of the ministry, um, and we've been doing CatholicCounselors.com since 1999 now, Um, The the whole focus of the ministry has been, you know, helping faithful people or people who are wanting to be faithful, you know, uh, uh, apply uh, apply their faith and and spirituality to the tough challenges that we face in everyday life and giving them the best psychological tools that are available to to make that happen. So that's really been our mission from the very beginning.
0: Are there theorists of psychology? I'm thinking along the lines of Freud and Jung, but probably not Freud anyway. Are there... (laughs) Uh, Because I come from like a philosophical background, so I'm kind of wondering, you know, I have a general idea of which philosophers uh, their thinking tends to support or dovetail with uh, like Orthodox theology better than others. Um, You know, so obviously like a bigger example would be Aristotle. Are there psychological Aristotles whose non-revelatory psychology do happen to kind of support the Catholic faith or a theological way of living?
1: Well, yeah, actually, um, there's, there's a, a word called attachment theory, and attachment theory, it goes back to World War II with a guy named John Bowlby, who was studying the impact that the war had on British orphans. And and children even who, you know, in the Chronicles of Narnia, for example, when the kids had to go live with the professor in the country, because London was being bombed, he was looking at early, he was doing research in parental separation, essentially, and looking at then kind of what does that mean for both parent-child relationships, but then adult relationships when those children grow up. And a lot of that research has actually been now validated with various brain studies. Um, Dan Siegel, for example, his work um, on how attachment affects the developing brain What's interesting is if you read Theology of the Body side by side with attachment theory, it's like they're saying the same thing. Mm. Um, Theology of the Body talks about the donative meaning of the body and attachment theory describes physiologically, you know, how our bodies communicate to each other and actually foster healthy brain development. You know, how our bodies were meant to work for each other's good and build relationship. I, I mean, it's all secular language. It's all empirical data. And it says almost exactly the same thing as theology of the body does it's crazy um so that 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 kind of uh, our mission essentially is is starting with the anthropological and theological assumptions of the theology of the body and translating them through the, it's the attachment theory to be able to help people live this out in the healthiest ways possible
0: that wraps it up for our questions where can we find you on social media
1: well you can look us up online at catholiccounselors.com on instagram and twitter at Catholic Counselors, and on Facebook, you just look up More To Life with Dr. Greg and Lisa, and that's our radio program that airs on Sirius XM every day at 10 a.m., Monday through Friday, Channel 130. Great, and we
0: will also have those links in the episode notes. Dr. Greg and Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. It was fun. And we're joined by Kara, who has just come back from her honeymoon. Welcome back, Kara. Thank you. And we are returning to Men, Women, and the Mystery of Love by Dr. Edward Sri. In episode 60, we started our journey through this book, and we are continuing with chapters three and four. So, Kara, why don't you uh, tee us up with where we left off and where we are picking up?
3: Sure. In chapter two in particular, chapter one was kind of a more of an intro, but chapter two we were talking about the difference between love and use and how common use is nowadays. And JP2 really continues the theme in kind of laying the groundwork so that we have a common vocabulary. So really, chapters three and chapter four are sister chapters. The two of them together are explaining the idea of attraction. The first half of that being the sexual attraction, which is sensuality. And the second half of it is emotional attraction or sentimentality. And I think that JP2 does a really nice job of laying out the ways in which the two of them are oriented in the abstract towards good things, in that we are, of course, attracted to the opposite sex for very natural reasons, but these impulses where we are attracted both physically and emotionally to the opposite sex can be clouded and can in, in certain ways be twisted such that, rather than in the ideal, it would lead us to appreciate the fullness of the person to whom we are attracted, instead, the attraction itself becomes the object to which the person is fixated on. So just for a quick explanation, in terms of sexuality, on the one hand, we have a natural inclination to be physically attracted to the opposite sex. And there's nothing wrong with that. We are physically attracted to the opposite sex like God made us that way. But when the focus becomes only about the physicalness of the person and you're not actually focused on the person and the good of that person, then it's been twisted into a thing that is no longer good. And the same can be said on the emotional side. How many times have people run away in their thoughts by the idea of a person? I know I've had many friends where you go through a breakup and at the end of it, it's like, oh my gosh, how did I not see this about the person? Well, it's because you got caught up in the idea of the emotions or you let the emotional state run away with you, which means that you weren't actually caught up with what was good about the person you were caught up in the emotions. You were caught up in the idealization of the person. And so these two chapters explore the many ways in which we kind of get these things wrong and the ways in which God actually created us so that we can orient them towards the good of the other and be using them in their proper way.
0: Yeah, that's the basic uh, shape of uh, these two chapters. Some people will make kind of a similar distinction, whereas Sri and JP2 call it sensuality and sentimentality. Some people will make a distinction between sexual love and romantic love uh, in an effort to say that they don't always go together and should often be like culturally endorsed as potentially separate practices, maybe overlapping, maybe diverging. Without judging the individual people who engage in either or both of those as separate from what we're outlining as true love, which is the focus of this book, we are going to be talking about some problems that arise with the actions and dispositions involved in these kinds of relationships. So this is very much a love the sinner, hate the sin approach that we're gonna be taking. Uh, In in these two chapters, and most likely later on in the book, first chapter three focuses more on sensuality.
3: So Andrew, I'm curious as a guy, I mean, it seems pretty obvious to me that a lot of the sins that are talked about here, they jump pretty quickly into things like pornography. You know, as a guy, how did you feel reading this? Was it like, did you feel seen or sort of offended?
0: Objection, leading the witness. (laughs) Uh, yes, no, uh, like, these are, this is where the rubber really meets the road, um, in this book, because if you're a guy reading this, you probably feel more accountable for this sort of objectification or obscuring the true nature of love. You, you might feel like it applies to you much more than it does to women. And, I mean, to be honest, like, the, the statistics on pornography consumption are, they apply to both sexes, but they apply to men much more than women. And, and I think three did a good job in these two chapters of resisting the temptation to say chapter 3 sensuality this is where the guys run into trouble <laughs> Chap- chapter 4 sentimentality this is where the girls run into trouble like he doesn't go that route fortunately no, cuz like cuz everyone needs to be on the lookout for both
3: i think that the reason why men tend to be more targeted by this particular sin is that men are generally more visual in nature. Um, and I think that there's something really interesting that they talk about in this chapter is just the ways in which we are sort of molded in our society today that like a lot of our advertising. And I I realized this once I left New York and came back to visit just the sheer quantity of, like, visual overload in advertising. And, I mean, it's constantly selling women's bodies as a thing to be consumed. Like, you're buying a shirt, but you're buying the woman, too. Like, you're buying sexuality. And I think that we get so trained to consume people um, in a way that it makes it really difficult to extract that viewpoint from, you know, the actual dating worlds to like say, oh, well, that's just advertising. And like a real woman is a real woman. I think it makes it really challenging, especially for men when you're constantly being molded to see women in that way.
0: I agree. And I think another thing that contributes to that kind of consumption oriented mentality that you're talking about, and that also does come up in chapter three here, is that for guys, in my experience, they tend to... Compartmentalize and over-specialize more than uh, women are susceptible to doing. So, I think everybody has gone down their fair share of Wikipedia rabbit holes. Uh, But like, like totally innocuous subject matter. But I can definitely remember remember as if it's no longer applicable to me. I can definitely <laughs> plead guilty to it being twelve o'clock at night. I'm ready to go to bed, but I'm not tired and i am now going to go down a 2 hour rabbit hole about the 1924 world series all of the participants in the 1920 world series <laughs> 1924 world series are long dead but that didn't stop me from sending my friends a nine-part novella about it because of how amazing it was. I am definitely susceptible to compartmentalizing and over-specializing.
3: Now I see why you and, and my husband Jason are friends. This is like, yeah. to a T, if I say something and he's like, I'm like, you're wikipedia this right now, aren't you? It's like, yes. Yes, <laughs> I am. Like...
0: yes, it's my natural conversation partner. <laughs> Where that plays into this consumption mentality is you can easily overemphasize one aspect of a thing mm. and try and consume it for that reason and ignore the whole of the thing. And that's, that's I think, where this sort of sensuality gets blown out of all proportion, uh, out of its proper role in human relationship, maybe more so than sentimentality. It plays into a difference that Sri talks about between consumption of an object versus contemplation of an object. And he doesn't use object in the sense of objectification, but just in the sense of subject-object relationship, the self and the other. Now, you can certainly objectify something if you're trying to consume it, um, and this is a major problem like we're talking about, but his discussion of consumption versus contemplation really struck me. Mm. A good example of this for me is, again, the way food is portrayed in movies. Uh, I guess that's just where my mind goes, because, again, I like to over-specialize. Uh, there, there are two really good instances of eating portrayed in movies that I can think of off the top of my head. One is in the Studio Ghibli movie Spirited Away, where there is this character, No-Face, that's just mindlessly consuming everything in the place of business where he just like, invaded. And he's just growing without limit. And it's sort of taken as a metaphor for like greed in, in uh, the Japanese economy in the 90s. And then the other one is the way eating is portrayed in the Disney Pixar movie Ratatouille, where food is this like worthwhile endeavor that is very creatively oriented. And when it's done well, you've given the other person a gift. And when they eat the food you've prepared for them, they experience this deeply personal level of enjoyment that Gets to the core of who they are, and they experience beauty in the world. These two varieties of eating sort of brought out that distinction between consumption on the one hand and contemplation on the other. I swear, guys, we're not only going to talk about movies that are either Ghibli or Pixar movies. (laughs) It's just speaking of specializing. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) because at this point we've we've covered two movies in our non-book episodes. We've covered uh, in episode fifty-nine. We covered My my neighbor Totoro. And in episode 61, we covered Soul. We're not only going to cover Ghibli and Pixar, but that's just how the cookie has crumbled.
3: You know, it's interesting, though, you're talking about those um, opposite ends of the of the same idea, right? Like eating can be either a thing that leads you in a way towards the essence of truth, goodness and beauty, or it can be molded or twisted, I suppose, into a negative or into sin. And I mean, I think yeah. you see that in all sin is essentially like the displacement of a of a good and turning it into its own object or its own end. Uh, you know, I think even here when we're talking about relationships, like I think the inverse impulse can be to then demonize the body. And that's certainly, I think, as Americans, like we – have sort of Puritanism woven into the fabric of who we are as Americans. And so I think we see this far more than everything I've ever talked to with my European friends. There's just a lot more dualism where we see the body as bad. And I, I think Sri does a good job in this chapter of not trying to demonize the body. The answer is not a rejection of the human form, it is this idea of contemplation and not that you're like contemplating how beautiful she is so much as it is that it should be leading you towards a greater exploration of, I'm attracted to this person and now I need to get to know the person where it's sort of like an entree into the thing that you're really supposed to get to know about them, and it becomes integrated. You know, later on in the book, there is a chapter about modesty, and I think we'll be coming back to this chapter because I think he does a good job here of reminding you that if you have sort of consumed people, then the types of things that might normally not be a problem become a problem because you have a different orientation about the human body. And so I would just warn people that the message of the church is not that the body is bad. The body is good. It was given to us by God, but it needs to be in the right place. And I think it's a particular challenge in today's culture because we're not only fighting against our sort of natural inclinations to objectify, but we're swimming in the sea of objectification all the time that makes it even more difficult to see somebody in you know, the, the right light that would lead you towards true love, which is getting to know a person and the whole of the person.
0: Yeah, and I think one way to tell the difference, it can be hard sometimes to tell the difference between consumption and contemplation when you're, when you're in it. And all you know is that whatever food you're eating feels good. But I think there, there's a key difference that I've kind of noticed in some of these portrayals. On the one hand, consumption generally leads to a kind of dulling of whatever the faculty is that you're using to relate to the thing. Mm. So whether that's the sense of taste for food or hearing for music, or in the case of relationships between men and women, vision, emotion, sensuality. On the other hand, when it comes to contemplation, uh, there's a kind of refining of the senses or a refining of the faculties that can take place. So like in Spirited Away, when the no-face monster is eating food, it doesn't care what it's eating. It does not even taking the time to taste the food. In Ratatouille, though, when the when the people who really appreciate food eat it, they stop, they take time, they're able to distinguish one flavor from another and judge how the flavors that they've distinguished relate to one another, uh, and they sort of see the intentionality that the, the chef put into it. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's all this refinement that kind of goes on, not in like an effete, snobby way, but in a way that just helps you sense the world around you better and appreciate it more. Because what happens when you contemplate something, you change to suit relationship with the thing you're relating to. So you're better able to receive whatever it is, receive the other, and appreciate it for its own sake. Whereas with consumption, the other is only ever satisfying a base need, and therefore you have no reason to develop yourself to receive that thing. You're just processing it. You're just a consumption factory. So the issue isn't, that sensuality or sentimentality is bad. Like Kara, you were saying, you know, Sri doesn't really even come close to saying that the body or sensuality is bad. The issue is isolating either form of attraction from the deeper delight in the other for the other's own sake, so that you can truly regard the other as good. And I think the the role that gaining a deeper appreciation of the other can play can be surprising at times. When you're introduced to the other as a potential good. Generally we tend to underestimate it and on the outside they seem to be relatively simple. You know, it's just a it's just a hunk of beef, but and so it's surprising when it turns into like a a steak that costs $40. And I think this this expectation that is then surpassed sort of plays into the this this contemplation of the other as good for its own sake is surprising because The other doesn't initially seem capable of revealing that kind of beauty in the world. So when you hear a song not expecting it to make you cry, you don't expect a few notes on the page coming out of musical instruments are going to elicit that kind of strong response from you or make you think of a family member uh, that you grew up with listening to that song or reveal something about the way that sounds can interact in a, a really pleasing way.
3: So philosopher Andrew, what does that, how do you think that's experienced as an actual attraction and love for average Joe, maybe less philosopher than you?
0: Yeah. Okay. So if you look at a human being, right, and you see, and let's say you're you're new to human beings, you've never seen one before. Uh, You're from another planet and you're just like experiencing human being totally fresh. This is like a new concept for you. Human beings look ridiculous. (laughs) They walk around on two feet and they have two other feet that they don't walk around on that are seemingly not doing anything. Compared to most other animals, they don't have any sort of outer protection uh, like a shell or fur. They don't fly. They don't run particularly fast. There's no outward indication that they are built for anything particularly effective. This is sometimes brought out in like different elements of science fiction where this totally other being will call humans bags of mostly water or something like that. Just kind of reducing them down to their minimal physical characteristics. Uh, which is kind of demeaning, but you can you can see where they're coming from. But then when you really actually come to regard another human being as good, it's surprising because you wouldn't expect a bag of mostly water to be the most important person in your life or to <laughs> reveal to you things about your own existence that you never expected. Uh, you wouldn't expect the, the bag of mostly water to be uh, a recipient and an agent Of knowledge and love to broaden your horizon for truth and existence but that's what falling in love true love can do once you properly integrate sensuality and sentimentality so we shouldn't expect a bag of mostly water to be such a deep reality any more than we should expect to win a war with water balloons and yet they do so that's that's where i was trying to go with that (laughs) Was that crazy
3: slightly but you know, whoever whichever lucky girl gets you good friend, <laughs> your your romantic side is very adorable and Just to <laughs> cap this off. We can can talk a little bit about chapter four Yeah, one thing that really struck me as you were waxing poetic <laughs> uh, one of the things that is really sad about the com- consumerist mindset that we have today is that it's really a stunting. I mean, I think that, that you know, Sri talks about it in the, in the book and, and JP2 talks about it too, just the fact that you're sort of selling people short because you're just giving them this thing on like a very surface level and telling them that that's what's most important. And it sort of means that you miss the beauty of going deeper and the way in which these things are sort of self-reinforcing. Like the more you love the real person, the more you can appreciate both the sensuality and the sentimentality because it's reinforced by truth.
0: There's a really good quote from C.S. Lewis uh, at the end of chapter three. I also highlighted
3: that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> good. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think that'll, that'll be a good capstone for chapter three. We use a most unfortunate idiom when we say of a lustful man prowling the streets that he, quote, wants a woman, unquote. Strictly speaking, a woman is just what he does not want. He wants a pleasure for which a woman happens to be the necessary piece of apparatus. Now, love makes a man really want not a woman, but one particular woman. In some mysterious but quite indisputable fashion, the lover desires the beloved herself, not the pleasure she can give. That's the end of the quote from C.S. Lewis. From A Mind Awake, an anthology of C.S. Lewis. Okay, so let's uh, let's move on to chapter four, which pivoting from sensuality covers sentimentality. They use the example of Titanic as sort of the best cultural example of... not JP2 does not use the example of Titanic. <laughs> Sri, Dr. Sri time. does. Dr. Sri uses the example of Titanic as sort of this misleading tendency to idealize uh, on an emotional level. And this can largely be summed up as putting the other on a pedestal, I think. Not willing to see them for who they are, but being enthralled with uh, an idealized version of them that doesn't really comport with their weaknesses, failings, uh, shortcomings, just the nature of being a finite person. It doesn't love the person for being a finite person.
3: In a way, it's almost being in love with the feeling of being in love. It's like, yeah. this person makes me feel good, and therefore I'm attributing all these things to them, which really doesn't have anything to do with them. It has to do with the fact that like I feel good because I have this attention. It's a sort of twisting of the excitement of the potential of a relationship without encountering that person for who they are right well so we we dug in on you a little bit andrew i will i'll take one for the team and say that i actually don't think that this is relegated only to the world of women but i think it is stereotypically seen as a sort of like romanticizing trait that is more often seen with women i mean i certainly know lots of guys who put the girl that they're dating up on a pedestal as well but I think the sort of how many times have you met the girl who has had a few interactions with someone on Catholic Match and they're already basically like planning the wedding in their mind well girl chill so (laughs) and I think that there's a in a good way we're supposed to be caught up with the person who we truly love especially when you're married in a committed relationship it is good to let things go You know, if you noticed every little imperfection with your partner, you know, that's that's the kind of stuff that drives people crazy. And this sort of rose colored glasses are actually a good thing to, like, try and keep on a little bit in your marriage so that, (laughs) you know, you are seeing the person in the best light. And, you know, I highly recommend anybody read any books by Dr. John Gottman, who talks a lot about what are the underlying fundamentals of healthy marriages. And one of the things he talks about is, like, always assuming that the person you know, means the best. And I think part of that is constantly falling in love with your partner. And so it's just in the same way that the physical reality of the person can lead you to appreciate them more and it can be self-reinforcing. Sentimentality can do the same thing where it can help us be kinder to our spouse because we find things endearing that maybe are actually super annoying, lots of dad jokes going on in the Bach house lately. Yeah. It's very sweet. I like it <laughs> for now. So we,
0: we have this recorded so we can play it back to you five or ten years down the road. <laughs>
3: exactly. I have told them, I was like, I'm going to keep laughing at this because I might someday cry. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, no, but that's a good point to draw a distinction between sentimentality as a kind of idealizing of the other versus the, again, opposite extreme of condemnation or resentment. Assuming that any weakness or shortcoming the other has means they don't want the best for you and they have ill intentions for you. So, and I'm kind of seeing that opposition similar to the opposition between like sensuality and puritanism. Mm. As as puritanism is to sensuality, so that kind of resentment is to sentimentality. So I, I think that's helpful to uh, to set up those extremes that we're supposed to be aware of when we're talking about where love hits the kind of golden meaning between those extremes. Where we're seeing the person who, for who they are, we don't have blinders on, but at the same time, we are still being charitable to them and we're willing to forgive their mistakes. But first, in order to forgive their mistakes, we have to see them as mistakes, so.
3: Yeah, I mean, I guess these two chapters together are good reminders that we are not only spiritual beings we are physical we are emotional and that these are all gifts from God but they need to work together you know any one of these things without the other doesn't work and so you know our emotions must be subject to our will back when i was running verily we were always pretty adamant in our in our, our sort of dating articles because you didn't see this in a lot of sort of secular culture that you know you might be attracted to somebody but the purpose of dating is to get to know a person and that can only happen over time and the reason why that's true is because all of these emotions will eventually fizzle and you will start to see the reality of the person and so like that is true love right is like seeing the good and the bad and can you guys work through it? Are they actually a good person? How do they treat you? Those kinds of things. You can't truly judge that when you're in the throes of like the early honeymoon days.
0: But sentimentality has to have something to it because there are all these movies and books and plays and musicals and songs where people fall in love in less than a week. And it's so fun.
3: Uh, The one, you know, I must say, even when I was a kid, as much as I loved playing Little Mermaid when I'd like go to the pool, because, like, it would be fun to be a mermaid. Ariel has always driven me nuts. It's like, first of all, girlfriend, you don't know this guy. You can't You he can't even talk. You can't talk. You guys have no idea who you are. I'm going to leave behind my entire family because dude is real handsome. Like, what are we talking about here?
0: <laughs> okay. All right. So favorite movies, books, whatever, works of fiction where characters have fallen in love within a week of meeting each other. Go.
3: Wait, is this, like, actual favorites or, like, love-hate relationship? Either. Mm. Okay, I do actually like Aladdin. Again, I know this is, like, more animated movies.
0: They they at least bond over, like, serving the poor, I think, in theory. Maybe? Yeah, I mean,
3: they actually have, like, a real encounter, right? Like, he saves her. Like, she's she's spunky. You know, there's, like, okay, they're attracted to...
0: And I think they, they both, like, don't they bond over, like, what it's like to be marginalized or not respected? Yes. Just something like that in their yeah, like own you're type trapped. Of world. Yeah.
3: You're right. Yeah. So there's, like, something. There's something there. Okay. You know, maybe they shouldn't get married in a week, but.
0: I'll go next. Les Mis. Les Miserables. Oh. The, the Broadway musical. Cosette and Marius. <laughs> they fall in love in less than the span of a song. And I, it's great. <laughs> go for it, kids. Okay, do, do you have any more?
3: So I love, I'm into Pride and Prejudice, but that's like, they have a very long gestation period and she actually hates him at first. So that's not, that's no good.
0: I think that's, that's, that's a really good counter example maybe.
3: I mean, who doesn't love Pride and Prejudice? Yeah. And don't at me if you don't, please. <laughs> Obviously like they are deeply flawed characters but the whole point of the book is that like their love is revealed through getting to know each other like at a much deeper level. And then she realizes that he's actually quite handsome because she no longer feels slighted. That's like my personal ideal as opposed to an anti-ideal.
0: <laughs> okay, the next one is going to sound like I identify with it, but I don't think this is a personal ideal. The Godfather. When Michael goes to Italy and he just lays eyes on a girl and he gets struck with the thunderbolt. and <laughs> It's
3: been so long.
0: Without them talking to each other, he meets the girl's dad and tells the dad that he wants to marry her. And the, and it's it becomes clear to the dad and the girl that who this guy is is the member of a very powerful organized crime family. And the girl's like intrigued. She, she listens. There's no implication that she feels threatened or like compelled into this. She's just like, yeah, okay, I agree. Baffling. <laughs>
3: that is so baffling. Yeah. You're Italian. Maybe you can tell me more about this. I don't get it, but... <laughs>
0: Poor Apollonia. It's this notion of some kind of Mediterranean passion. I don't know. I'm too Americanized to fully understand it. I'm a watered down Italian to be sure.
3: (laughs) This is not a movie I would necessarily wholeheartedly recommend, but I thoroughly enjoy the movie Hitch.
0: Hitch is a very fun movie. Like,
3: Like the point of that movie is actually that it develops over time and like he does all the wrong things. And then, you know, it's like, oh, it's because he's being genuinely himself and like he kicks her in the head with his flipper that. Wait, 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 wait. Things actually like go well.
0: This is not an endorsement of abusive dating practices. He accidentally, he (laughs) accidentally kicks her in the head. It's okay.
3: Pure folly. Total (laughs) (laughs) accident. Feels terrible.
0: <laughs> One that I I find very romantic is Before Sunrise, uh, which is sort of an indie movie from the 90s. But it's just two people who meet on a train and walk around Vienna for 16 hours. And they go from meeting to falling in love in that span of time. And it's just the whole movie is just a conversation between them. And it's still unrealistic. They still fall in love. like. Less- after less than a day of knowing each other and they don't know each other's middle or last names through the entire time. But the conversations they have are very well done and very thoughtful. So it does kind of exceed the normal, a heart full of love, Les Miz style meet cute.
3: All right, I'll check that out.
0: Uh, I was going to talk about Faramir and Eowyn meeting at the end of Return of the King. Oh yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I know we all love Tolkien. I know we all love Lord of the Rings here, but come on guys, we got to admit... Eowyn and Faramir, they meet. There's nobody else in the city. Eowyn says, Oh no, the world's going to end. Faramir says, I don't think so. It's springtime pretty soon. That's all. And they fall in love, and that's it. <laughs> Beautiful.
3: I'll give them the benefit of the doubt that maybe there's like some off screen conversations.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they studied Elvish together
3: or something. <laughs> sure, that sounds romantic.
0: All right. Well, so much for our treatment of sensuality and sentimentality. We'll be back the episode after the next one. We'll be talking about chapter five and six of Men, Women, and the Mystery of Love. So be sure to join us then. In the meantime, Kara, thanks for joining us.
3: Thanks for having me.
0: Marking the five-year anniversary of the publication of Amoris Laetitia, Pope Francis has called for a year celebrating and reflecting on the family. The Amoris Laetitia family year runs all the way until the 10th meeting of families in Rome on June 26, 2022. And in the meantime, the USCCB's website will have lots of news and resources as the year progresses, so be sure to check out the link to that in the show notes. Please share this podcast with your friends, leave us a review on iTunes, and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks to Alejandro Del Pozo for the use of our theme music, and to Fulton Sheen for our sign-off. Bye now, happy Easter, and God love you.